It's the first Monday of the month, and we're responding to your questions. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 503. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stehoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Once a month, we open up the show to respond to your questions. If you have a question you'd like us to review and potentially respond to in a future episode, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. That is the very best way for you to get it on our radar screen. And I am joined by Bonnie as I am almost every month. Hello, Bonnie. Hi, Dave. I know that we record these episodes sometimes out of order, so I sort of have my jaw just dropped over here at your mention of episode 503. That is nutty. Congratulations. Yeah, Yeah, we passed 500 a few weeks ago. Uh, Thank you so much for everything you've done to contribute to this all along. I'm I'm trying to remember back to how this started with, because we didn't do Q&A episodes early on in the first few years. And then at some point we started doing them and you jumped in and, you know, it all of a sudden six or seven years went by. It's been it's been so much fun for me. Oh, I didn't realize it had been that long that we've been doing them, although I did recently get promoted to a full professor where I work. And so I had to put together a rather extensive portfolio about what was that nine months ago or yeah. 16 years ago, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere <laughs> right? in that range. But yeah, when I went to put together, you know, the episodes I had been on that, it it, cer- it certainly has added up over time, but you know, it doesn't feel like a labor in, in terms of a lot that you need to thank me for, because it really is a joy to come on and hear from such interesting people that are wrestling with such uh, big challenges. And I just honored that we could be included in their thought process in any way is really an honor. I feel the exact same way. So many of you reached out about the about episode 500 and the transition. Thank you so much for the kind words. Uh, transition, I mean, transition to <laughs> the next 500 episodes, <laughs> which is the plan, of course, just getting started. And so lot, lots more to come. Uh, we have so many great interviews already scheduled for the next several months. And uh, and we're coming up on 10 years in the next six, seven months. So we'll do something for that on the 10-year anniversary when we hit that. Uh, but in the meantime, we have some questions to respond to today. And then we're also going to do something a little different today. We're going to tackle some technology we've been playing with that we think might be useful to folks uh, out there as well. So we'll dive in a little bit on that too. So our first question is from Joyce. Joyce writes, greetings. I'm looking for feedback on organizational culture assessments. Any suggestions? Thank you. Short and sweet. I love it, Joyce. Uh, Organizational culture assessments. All right. So I have, uh, I'm going to broaden your question a bit here, Joyce. I am going to respond to it with a couple of specific suggestions, but I want to step back just a bit because this is something that a lot of organizations look at doing when they reach a certain size. And um, there are some common missteps that organizations tend to make. You may already know them well, Joyce, but for others listening who maybe are thinking about doing this for the first time, a couple of suggestions. So uh, many organizations like to collect data, and collecting data on this can be really useful, uh, whether it's an organizational climate survey or culture assessment or an engagement survey, which has been popular over the last five, 10 years. Um, They can really surface some useful data that can then provide direction and language 
that helps organizations and leaders to move forward and make decisions about how to improve culture, climate, insert whatever it is you're measuring here. And many of the assessments do a combination of those things, or many organizations, of course, use a suite of assessments. There are two common mistakes that I see leaders in organizations make when they're thinking about doing this or are actually rolling out an assessment. One of the mistakes is, and and I think I can mostly say this is a mistake in most organizations if you do this, is not being transparent with the results of the assessment. And the way that this typically goes is an organization, an executive team, a leader, an HR department gets excited about doing a organizational climate survey or an assessment and collects a bunch of data and the data comes back and the story isn't as good as someone thought the story was going to be. And I think what, at least one of the ways that I've seen this typically play out is someone in HR or someone else on the executive team gets really excited about collecting a bunch of data and surfacing some of the blind spots in the organization that will be helpful to improve upon. And it comes from a very good place of wanting to do that. And then the CEO or other significant leader of whatever part of the organization they're doing this for signs off on it, isn't really fully invested in the project. And then the data comes back and the chief person, CEO, whoever looks at the data and says, ugh, there's some things in here that I don't like. This paints a story of organization that doesn't match the story I had in my head and feels hesitant about then sharing that or that data within the organization. And the reason this is a mistake is because if you're going to go through the process of spending a month, 90 days, however long, of having many or most people in the organization to go through the process of filling out assessments and reporting on what they think is happening in the organization, and then that data gets collected and it's never shared, or significant pieces of that information are left out, then it demonstrates to others in the organization that the leadership isn't willing to take action and doesn't trust the organization to do something with that data. And I don't think anyone goes into this with the intention of that happening, but I have seen that happen several times now where a whole bunch of data gets collected and then the data is never shared or only parts of the story are actually told within the organization. And that's probably, it's probably one of those things where I think you're better off not doing the assessment at all unless you have really key buy-in from the top person that whatever the story is when the data comes back, that you're willing to share that story transparently. Now, it doesn't mean you you have every single piece of data that necessarily goes to the entire organization, but that you're willing to paint a realistic story of what that assessment showed so that you as an organization are then willing to address that and to create some movement from that information. And that's the second mistake that's made is not actually doing any movement beyond this. So I've also seen it happen where in some organizations, they're very, as they should be, very transparent about sharing data and information that comes out of the assessment, highlighting trends, talking about blind spots, even going as far, and some of you have been part of organizations where it's individual managers and departments, the engagement scores and rating scores and climate scores come out and there's rankings done and and all that kind of thing. And then there's not very much that's done to create movement after that. 
And I've, boy, if, if I had a dollar for every time I've been in a conversation with someone over the years who said, we received this score and our engagement numbers or culture numbers are whatever this year. And then the organization really hasn't given us anything to do something with that, either has provided us a framework or provided training or then had some significant follow-up and steps to take beyond this, boy, <laughs> I'd be rich. And so it, that is also a mistake because if you're going to go through the process of highlighting all of the challenges and blind spots in the organization, and by the way, even the healthiest organizations are going to have blind spots and things they're not doing well come out of assessments like this. If you're going to go through that whole process to highlight that to everyone and then not do anything with it, then that also is one of those things you're probably better off not doing it at all. And of course, the irony in this whole thing is if some bad news comes back on the assessment that comes up to senior leadership, everyone already knows, <laughs> right? Uh, if there's a trend in the organization that's not working, no, people may not be saying it out loud, but people already know that there's something that's not working within the organization. So I think the best thing you can do, Joyce, before you start an assessment is get buy-in from the top. The CEO, if you can, or whoever is the senior leader in that organization that is running that project, getting buy-in at the top, first and foremost, to being transparent with what the results come so that the organization knows where they stand. And then secondly, of the commitment to create movement afterwards. And maybe movement is making a commitment to when the results come out, we will have a process for creating training or creating conversations or whatever is appropriate for that. It doesn't necessarily have to all be figured out in advance. In fact, it probably shouldn't be until the results come out. But a commitment that you're going to do something as an organization to address any concerns that come out with that. And if you have those two things going in, I think you're doing a lot better than many organizations who begin this process. Now, your question specifically, what are some places you may go to find some resources for this. Uh, one organization that I'd recommend, we did an episode a while back with Ken Nowak on getting smart about assessments. We talked about all kinds of different assessments, um, one of them at organizational assessments. And Ken's organization has a lot of resources on this. So I will link that up in the episode notes for those who would like to dive in more on assessments in detail. And Ken and his organization would be a wonderful starting place for even more resources. The other organization that uh, I have utilized before, although it's been a number of years since I've used their assessments, um, but they really have done tremendous work on especially organizational culture and climate surveys, is Human Synergistics. They have a really nice, circumplex model, graphically uh, rich, and they have not only have a really wonderful assessment suite, but also have really done a lot to support consultants, both internal and external of then coming into an organization with an assessment product and helping them to have a good conversation about the results, what to do in advance, how to debrief, all those kinds of things. They have a nice ecosystem around that. In fact, I went through one of their trainings years ago and I walked away from it thinking like, wow, this would be so valuable if ever I was going to go through this process. So I will link up to Human Synergistics as well. And Joyce, hopefully those will be some good starting points for you and others we're thinking about moving forward with the organizational culture assessment. Our next question is from Nina. Nina writes and says, I'd like to know about managing a cohesive culture for office and warehouse staff across different locations. Our business is growing and we want to create a cohesive culture 
which allows for unique cultures in each workforce segmentation. I'd also appreciate any resources you think would be insightful or companies that are known for smashing this. Bonnie, what do you think? The biggest thing that I think of that can detract from what you're describing here is having a espoused set of values and then having systems and incentives and processes that don't align with what you've espoused is important. The most classic one of this is a company saying how important teamwork is and then incenting people for individual performance and not ever really making mention of the teamwork end of things. So that's number one in terms of wanting to foster a culture. When we talk about culture, People who are experts in this area, like Edgar Schein is one of the ones who first comes to mind, remind us that we can't really create culture. Culture is a little bit hard to sort of be that purposefully controlling about to have everything. Just because I put my mind out to do it, sometimes other things will emerge that I hadn't intended around the culture. And some of that can be because of this mismatch between the values that get espoused and which ones actually get incentivized and which kinds of practices and policies do we have in place. Another really big element for me in terms of a culture is wanting to make sure that people really feel like they're going to be able to be heard regardless of how well they fit in with that culture. Sometimes I have observed in some of these cultures that actually you get a little bit too much of a cohesive culture. People that look the same, talk the same, think the same. And then if you try to have a little bit more diversity in that group, then that person can really feel ostracized. A classic example would be a workforce that may have all been uh, comprised of men and then wanting to bring more women into the picture and how difficult that can be especially for the first woman, but especially as uh, um, more people join that team and, and wanting and needing that culture to evolve for what could be the unique challenges that women may face versus men. I'm thinking, Dave, there was a, I'm not going to remember the name of the TV show and it doesn't matter, but where they had a person who was in a high level position come in and take on the jobs of some of these frontline workers only to discover, lo and behold, the women were having to use the bathroom in a can because they didn't have proper breaks to be able to use the restrooms. You know, these are the kinds of things that come up in. And by the way, the show I'm mentioning which I can't remember the name, but uh, it, it's also been heavily criticized for oversimplifying these things and like thinking that all the problems in the organization have been solved just because one person realized, oh, wow, we don't give bathroom breaks. Like that should have been something that they figured out before they were on national television. But anyway, these are the kinds of things to be thinking about, wanting to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to be heard, that there are safe and confidential ways for people's concerns to be able to be expressed. Sometimes, unfortunately, what can happen, too, is if you really do get a cohesive culture going, we've all probably heard stories where it's like, oh, no, don't work too hard because you'll make the rest of us look bad. We have our own pace that we go in and it's uncomfortable for us if you come in here and start trying to do things differently, speed things up. Oh, no, we're, we've all kind of created this together. And but when I say that, by the way, I certainly don't mean to demonize people. It's just it's just these can be really, really messy things and we can celebrate that common culture. But sometimes that common culture can actually hold us back from being able to have all voices be heard and being able to have opportunities for people who might have ways for things to be done better to feel like it's safe for them to express that. Another thing that comes up to me around different kinds of cultures is, and it certainly has for me in my own career, is just I tend to idealize things sometimes and think like how great it is if you just love what you do and you're super passionate about it. 
And there are certainly some people, there are also some jobs that would lend themselves to this kind of a thought process about one's work that really, I don't love my job. I need to make money. And so that's what I do. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like there's nothing wrong with me as a person. It doesn't make me any less valuable to your organization if I tend to have a different mindset about what work is and what it does. And so there's a really big movement. And of course, this comes up in a lot of different contexts, but just about the dignity of work and wanting to make sure that people are respected and regarded and that they have the tools that they need to do their job, that they are safe. And and again, that they have that voice that is just so important. What you're trying to do here, Nina, is such a challenge. And I'm really glad that you contacted us. I, I feel like I just have a few nuggets of thoughts, but I did also just want to say that the thing that you're attempting to do is definitely a challenge as a leader, because it's like a, I felt so many areas where there could be a paradox between, yeah, one common culture. Oh, but sometimes the bad things that can happen when we do have one common culture. And so I just have kind of a hodgepodge of thoughts and would love to hear back from you after you've continued on this path of trying to have some of these cultural initiatives come about. And I know Dave has some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, I do a few thoughts. Uh, Everything you said, and then I think one of the lessons I've had over the years, not only seeing this happen, but also talking to some of the culture experts who've come on the show, is really getting clear on what the values are that you want to hold within the organization. And this starts at the very top. So back to the previous question, the commitment from the top on what are the values the organization holds, not just the ones that are up on the wall somewhere, but really on a daily basis is the values that are important, that the leadership team exemplifies, that the top person in the organization and top team wants to see cascade and be a part of that culture. And values, to your point of you want to have a culture that's cohesive, but you also want to you know, have the individual experiences come out and the different perspectives come out in each different location. And so values, I think, stay very consistent. The way that those values are manifested within each location may be different. And once you know what those values are, storytelling becomes a big piece of that. I'm thinking about Ginger Hartage, who's been on the show before, former uh, senior vice president of culture at Southwest Airlines, the work that they've done to really align clearly at Southwest on what their values are. But where the rubber really meets the road on that is storytelling. And of course, storytelling is the language of leaders. And storytelling is a beautiful and wonderful way to be able to articulate values throughout the organization. But the beauty of it is it also can be very individual per each leader, per each location, per each team, because everyone has their own stories, their own stories that really really match those values. And so I think what the organization as a whole and what you may do, Nina, as a leader in the organization is be helping the organization to clarify what those values are, and then also to be someone that is the evangelist for storytelling and helping the team to learn how to tell stories and how to articulate those values in a meaningful but also practical way. And one of my favorite folks who is so good at teaching leaders how to do this and being able to tell stories throughout the organization is David Hutchins. David's been on the show a few times before. He has a really beautiful uh, story deck that he has available for leaders on teaching all kinds of different ways to tell stories, depending on the situation and the context. I'm going to link up to one of the past episodes he's been on that 
He talks about four key stories that every leader should have, and a lot of those are based in values. If you don't know where to start, I think that's a wonderful place to begin of getting clarity on what the values are, but also then perhaps using some of those resources and, and templates for how to frame those stories. And David's really good at that step-by-step of, you know, here would be the way you would tell a value-based story. Here's the way you would talk about a success in the organization. Here's the way you would talk about the origin of who we are as an organization and what we believe in. So I will link to both of those. And I think those will be really good starting points for you uh, as well, Nina. Hope uh, hope that's helpful and look forward to hearing from you and seeing uh, what was useful. So let's dive in, Bonnie, on a few things of technology that we've been playing with. And uh, one of the things that we're always doing is thinking how we can leverage technology better in our own lives and work. And I think probably most listeners know this, you and I are both pretty geeky (laughs) of trying to leverage technology in the best possible ways. So we've been playing with a few new things and you have one that's been on your radar screen recently. Well, it's definitely not a new tool for us. It's one password and it's the password manager that we've been using for quite some time, but it's just that it has some some new fresh features that to me just keep making it better and better. I do get concerned, Dave, about the number of people who don't have a method for getting secure passwords and reusing the same passwords or having things written down or keeping them on a computer somewhere that's not secure, even though it seems like it's secure because it's my computer, but it's really not secure unless it is set up to have the kind of encryption that's necessary. So tools like 1Password they have you, and the practice is right there in the name, they have you come up with one password that's super, super secure that then lets you in to all of your different passwords. And both you and I have really secure passwords. And I know mine takes a pretty long time to type in because it is super, super secure. But my little fingers go pretty fast because it's, it's been, you know, I've kind of been programmed to do that so many times a day. But now they have it where you can securely log in using your Apple Watch. So it's like shaving off time. And your, your, of course, your Apple Watch is presumably on your wrist and it has its own password system and its own security. So when you get in there using 1Password, then it kind of, to me, so far, it's been letting me stay logged in a little bit longer because I'm still there connected on onto the computer using my watch so it knows that I'm still sitting there. And just to be able to not just have access to passwords because that's part of it, but access to any kind of secure information. And to me, I don't even, it doesn't even necessarily have to be that secure, but just to have one common place where you can have information like that and you can set up different vaults. And so we have our own that we use for personal purposes, but we also have one for our family. And of course, now with our kids doing remote learning, our kids are having their own share of passwords. And we know so many of the parents that we would talk to or hear from Dave would get so frustrated. Oh my gosh, another password, another password. And we kind of didn't miss a beat most of the time, as long as we were provided with some kind of a login, we could have it all in one place. And even as nutty as this is for the kids to be able to access their own vaults because of the fingerprint readers in the iPad. So our kids don't even have to know what their password is. They just do that little fingerprint and then they have access to their secure passwords as well. And it just cracks me up that we've got a six-year-old and an eight-year-old who are so far ahead of the majority of people in terms of their own security and don't even really realize it yet. So I really think that having a password manager, we happen to be big fans of 1Password, but having something like that in your life or even thinking about making that possible for other people, Dave, I know you've done that for people in your life, Mm -hmm, gotten them set up because sometimes it feels to people 
people like it's just going to be this huge thing and I'm not ready to switch over and I've got my little sticky note password system and I'm good to go just to realize that, you know, after an initial setup, how easy it is to use these tools and how much they really can increase our security, but also they're really pretty seamless. And then this new little Apple Watch feature makes it that much more seamless for me. Yeah, it is really an amazing service. Uh, we've been using it for years and, you know, especially this year with the pandemic, there's so many more reports of online fraud and everything that unfortunately happens in the world around technology, you know, good and bad. If you don't use 1Password, using a password management system is is essential. And I think 1Password is one of the best ones. Full disclosure, by the way, we're not sure <laughs> if we're affiliated with them. We used to be at one point. So I'll find the links uh, for those who would like to try it out, see if we do have a affiliate link to put in the episode notes um, for the, those of you who would like to try it out and see if we can track down a, a free trial for those of you who are interested in discovering more. So our other tool that we've both been playing with, but I'll dive in first, is something I think would be of real interest to a lot of you. It's a tool called Readwise. This is a, I don't know how new this service is, but it just came on my radar screen in the relatively recent past. And what Readwise is, is the best way I can describe it, is it helps you to surface all of the things you've saved and read before and brings them back to you on a regular basis. So let me describe the way the service works is it connects up with your existing services and technology and helps to surface things that you have highlighted or saved in your reading. So for example, the way I am using it the most is I have for years, like many of you, been reading on Amazon's Kindle platform. And I often, as many of you also know, highlight, because I share those from our interview notes, I highlight the things that I've been reading in books. And those highlights um, are useful when I'm preparing for interviews. They're useful when I go back to think to look at a book and pull it out for whatever reason, and then go back and look at my highlights. But on a practical basis, the highlights I did in a book two or three years ago don't surface in any way and remind me about some of the important things from that book. And that's where Readwise comes in. It links up with your, in my case, Amazon account, but it can link up with all kinds of different services. And what it does is it brings in all of your highlights from those services, and then it shares them with you at some interval you choose. So the way I have this set up is I have it set up with Amazon Kindle, and it has synced up all my highlights from every book I've read in the last five, six, seven years, however long I've been reading on Kindle. And then once a day, it sends me an email, and it brings five highlights from five different books and shares them with me and reminds me of some of the critical things that I read. And so I can then do something with those. I can either just read them, which of course I always do, and be reminded of some of the key highlights in books. The other thing that I've been doing is I've been starting to share those with others. Uh, some of you have seen me post um, quotes from books on LinkedIn or put them in our weekly leadership guide. I'm not going back and doing regular reading and diving back into those books, although I probably should be. But why bother when there's a service like this that can do that automatically? And the other thing it can do is it can pull, there's a ton of services that it can pull highlights from, Instapaper, Pocket, it can pull things from Twitter, it, you can email to it, you can highlight PDFs and upload them into the service. And it takes all of those highlights and there's tons of things you can do with them. You can do flashcards, you can have it remind you of certain things, you can favorite highlights so they come back more often. 
I think there's a way you can set it up so it shares automatically with others. You've been doing some things with it too, Bonnie, that I haven't been doing. Am I remembering right that you've set up some systems to do some automated things? Uh, It's not automated, but I can just, when I get that email that you're referencing, I've set up the email to come into my RSS feeds, real simple syndication. So all my blogs, all my news sources, and now my highlights are coming into where I would normally consume news and blogs and such. And so I can just tap on when I see a quote that I'd like to share, I can just tap on share. And then it lets me share it on over to Twitter, which is where I do the majority of my social media connections and collaborations with people. And boy, it's really fun to be able to revisit a book that was from such a long time ago. I was thinking back, Dave, listeners may not know this. We actually met while we were earning our master's degrees and we had a final exam of sorts where you had to write a series of essays. And so you had to memorize, you know, a lot of names of theorists and theories and ideas. And I remember you and I, we really had done our homework on this, of course, and flashcards and all of that. We really had at the time a very well-versed, I felt, Dave, set of theories and names that could be applied in a number of different circumstances. And I can remember showing up for the exam that day and feeling like I have a unique set of skills (laughs) because I typed 90 words, at least at the time. I don't know. I haven't tested myself in a while, but 90 words a minute. And I really knew those things inside and out because they were so applicable to me in my life and in my work. And so I just had this sort of network of knowledge. Now, when you're not in school, at least for me, like you said, Dave, I might have read a book four years ago, but just haven't really thought much about it since. Or if I did think about it, maybe I didn't remember the author's name or what was the name of the book again. So it's kind of like, to me, a way of being able to retain those things that you really would like to be able to continue to draw from and continue to build that kind of a network of knowledge. And to me, that's really fun and exciting. I'm thinking one of the quotes that it surfaced recently was Daniel Kahneman. He did the system one and system two, thinking fast and slow. You can see in my brain, even just as I did it right there, like all I need is a couple more Daniel Kahneman (laughs) quotes and I'm going to have that coming right out of my mouth like I just read it yesterday. I mean, I really think that that is such a powerful tool for people who are committed to lifelong learning and also people who are committed to being able to share that learning with other people as leaders. I just think it's a really powerful tool. I wasn't sure how I felt about it at first because it seemed kind of so... Well, so what else is there? Like, like, like how powerful will this be? But it's quickly become something that I really look forward to contributing to my ongoing learning. One of the other things, I don't know if you know about this yet or saw it, but I haven't really dived in on the supplemental books. But, you know, the other challenge that I've had with this is like, well, I read a book 15 years ago, but I didn't highlight it or it was a paperback that I read. You can also go in your system and you can say, hey, I read this book 15 years ago and it has all the popular books in there. And then it will pull in the most popular highlights of other people from those books and then also put it as in part of your database and surface those to you as well. So they're not your highlights per se, but they're the common highlights. Like I put in, for example, The Seven Habits, Highly Effective People, because I read that 20 years ago before you know Kindle was even in existence. So I still get, I get highlights now of the popular highlights, which mostly are the things I probably would have highlighted too. So it's a really fun way, even if you've never used highlighting at all, you could still use the service to really do some neat things with it. Well, another thing that it has too is where you can upload documents. And so I sometimes have the great privilege of being able to read in advance books before they get published. And then when they get published, I don't always want to go and buy the book just so I could go in and read it again and highlight. And so I can take all the highlights that I did inside of a PDF 
app, for example, and be able to upload those. And that's been lots of fun to so to so that when the book comes out, and if it's someone that I really would like to help and support them promote their book, you know, it's a really nice way to be able to do that because all my highlights are already there. And I can share quotes in the similar way that I described earlier. Yeah, it's a fun service that both of us have really gotten a lot of value from right away. We just both have really discovered this and found it's been useful to surface ideas, to surface learning, and ideally be able then to use it in practical ways every day. Quick follow-up to our mentions of 1Password and Readwise. Turns out we do have links for you to extend a free trial. So if you'd like to try either out, those will be in the episode notes. And of course, this week's weekly leadership guide. So check that out. If you're not already receiving the weekly leadership guide, go over to coachingforleaders.com to set up your free membership. In addition, that'll give you access to the entire listener library, including some related episodes to today's conversation. One of them is episode 148. I mentioned early on the four critical stories leaders need for influence with David Hutchins. That's a wonderful place to start if you are looking to become a better storyteller, not the storyteller that you see when you go and watch a show or on the movies, but the storyteller who is able to convey values through the organization by talking about what's happening today and what's happened in the past. And we're, many of us, pretty good at doing that one-on-one with our friends and family and in personal conversations, and yet we don't always think to take that very same skill set that most of us are pretty good at, actually, and being able to leverage that in a organizational context. And David is really brilliant at helping leaders to do that well, and episode 148 will walk you through some of the critical stories that you can tell in order to leverage and surface the values that you already have in the organization. Also recommended episode 350, How to Create an Unstoppable Culture with Ginger Hartage, former senior vice president at Southwest Airlines. Ginger has had tons of experience for many decades on helping lead large organizations in culture, especially Southwest, and we dive into detail on episode 350 on how her and her team did that for many years and produced such amazing results. Also, Bonnie had mentioned Edgar Schein's work. He was on episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership, a wonderful place, of course, to complement culture and values in an organization. And then finally, I mentioned the work of Ken Nowak. He was on episode 371, talking about getting smart about assessments. All of those episodes, you, of course, can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And if you go over to coachingforleaders.com and set up your free membership, you will be able to search the entire episode library since 2011 by topic. And one of the topics there is organizational culture. We've had many conversations over the years supporting culture and including some of the episodes I just mentioned, but many others as well. In addition, that will give you access to the weekly leadership guide, the member cast, my own personal library, all of the book notes and highlights that I mentioned. I also post those online and interview notes. All of those are there. Plus, all of the free audio courses, all available at coachingforleaders.com. Set up your free membership and you'll be off and running. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Julia Taylor Kennedy back to the show. She is going to be bringing us up to speed on some of the recent research on the ways that we can support more belonging in our organizations. Join me for that conversation next week. Take care.